ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Over 200 million Indonesians are about to head to the polls. It might be one of the most critical elections on the planet. And it's happening right next door to us. We're juggling relationships with both China and the US. And surely we'll increasingly rely on strong links with our neighbours, particularly a giant like Indonesia. But, and this is a big but, there are concerns. The result of this election might see Indonesia sliding away from democracy rather than strengthening it. If Indonesia is a country at a crossroads, where does that leave us? One thing's for sure, we ignore Indonesia at our peril. I'm Hamish McDonald. I'm Geraldine Duke. Welcome to Global Roaming. Jerry, hello. We're off to Indonesia this week. Yes, and of course, as a sand groper, I grew up in Perth, honestly, Indonesia was just up the road. And they all visit Bali, of course, at West Australians. They don't think it's actually Indonesia, but it is. So, I mean, it's something that I've felt, I don't know, quite close to for many, many years. So my first posting as a foreign correspondent was to Southeast Asia. I spent some time studying Bahasa, lived in Yogyakarta briefly, uh, but then for a much longer period in, in KL in Malaysia, but covered Indonesia, Timor, etc pretty extensively. I've had this, I guess, long-time love affair with Indonesia. I feel so excited about its potential as a country. And I know there's a lot of criticisms that are levelled at it, many of them genuine and warranted. But it is a country that I always feel Australia doesn't quite get, doesn't quite latch on to in the way that we we might. No, look, it's 18,000 islands. It's an extraordinary story of nationalist emergence, you know, that came about post the, it was sort of Dutch East Indies, and then the Japanese took it over a terrible time really in many ways. And then out of that came this amazing place called Indonesia, that the very strong sense of being Indonesian too, when you're there. So it's only sort of 75 years old, but it's, by God, they have a strong sense of nationalism. But a constructed nation. The language is a construction. The idea of this vast archipelago being one unified nation is a construction. And, And all of those differences and disparities exist Today, you get this very modern capital in Jakarta that is forward-looking, big digital economy, very advanced in many ways, and yet you still have regions of the country that are uh, very much developing nation status, places like West Papua, still suppressed, some would argue oppressed, facing very basic living conditions. Uh, And so all of those disparities continue. And yet, since the Sahado regime, uh, a period of further democratisation, stripping the military of many of its powers, enormous economic growth under Jokowi, the the current president who's on his way out. Of course, there's a term limit system in Indonesia. You can serve two five-year terms. Uh, He's at an end of that. And I think Australia actually in many ways has become accustomed to fairly benign Indonesian leaders in recent years because, of course, preceding Jokowi was the guy we knew as SBY, Susilu Bambang Yudhoyono, both fairly gentle characters who, although there's been some bumps along the way and we can all think of issues that have been problems between Australia and Indonesia, uh, the relationship has been fairly steady and I think we've come to to almost accept that, but it hasn't always been so 
And it may not always be no. so. No, and they've got this very interesting, I mean, they certainly, their complexity of their voting is remarkable and it goes right down to the village level and, it, I mean, it is admirable, actually, what they've managed to achieve. It will be, though, I suppose, under great scrutiny with this election coming up on the 14th. There are three key candidates in this election. There is Ganja Pranoa, who's the governor of central Java. There is Anis Baswedan, who's been the governor of Jakarta, and a very well-known character. And there is Praboa Subianto with his running mate, Gibran Widodo, Jokowi's son. So it's a, there's a three-way election. <laughs> Whether it'll quite turn out like that is uh, what we're uh, really intrigued by. Because the polls at the moment are pointing to a Praboa victory, and that certainly has implications, big implications for Indonesia, but for us too. Well, maybe that's a perfect opportunity to introduce our guest, Dewi Fortuna Anwar. She's a long-time observer of her country and its politics and a former senior advisor to the Indonesian president and vice president. Dewi, welcome to Global Roaming. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. You could say, Dewi, that we've had quite a lot of predictability in our Indonesia-Australia relationship for, say, the last 20 years in in many ways. It could be about to get a bit more exciting (laughs) with your election on the horizon. Would you agree? Definitely. You can say that depending on who uh, will be elected as Indonesia's president, there could be some some changes in atmosphere. Prabowo, I think it's writ large, is very much part of the new order government. The new order government, while beloved to the establishment in Australia, as you know, was a bit of a bogeyman for the civil society, for the media in particular, for democracy activists, particularly not just because of uh, the problems of Indonesian democracy and human rights violations under the new order, but a lot of attention from Australia towards the new order regime as related to East Timor, the accidental death of some Australian journalists there. And Prabowo, for those who still remember that, would still be associated with that. But I don't know, maybe the younger generations of Australian media and activists are probably you know, no longer as alert still remember that that episode in Indonesian history. Well, Dewi, the point is it's not just as long ago as that. When you read through the files, as recently as 1998, in that very traumatic time of the Asian financial crisis and the that real burst of awful violence internally, particularly with the fall of the New Order government and violence against um, Chinese people in particular, there were about 20 pro-democracy young protesters from students who went missing and have never been found again. Well, 13, never found again. And he is certainly said to have been associated in some form, or that's the rumour about that. So that's not a long, long time ago. Mm, mm, Absolutely. No, no, you are are very absolutely right. And you would have thought that the Indonesian publics, you know, the Indian political parties, the Indonesian uh, wider uh, electorates would have found objections to that. The fact of the matter is that in the presidential elections of 2009, Megawati chose Prabowo as her, her running mate, which meant that he was already considered to be above all of those criticisms. Otherwise, why would Megawati, who is considered to be considered a symbol you know, of opposition against any order. She picked him up as, as uh, her running mate. And then, of course, you know, he ran again for president in 2014. 
and 2019. Of course, uh, Prabowo lost both times to Jokowi and, and most of the arguments then that, you know, Prabowo won respectable number of votes, over 40%, but he lost to Jokowi, among others, because Jokowi is considered to be more trusted and does not have the burden of this new order, Dart's legacy and uh, the violence associated with Prabowo. And now, if you've been reading the polls, Prabowo Gibran, you know, Gibran, is uh, his running mate, is the son of uh, Jokowi Dodo. They seem to be the, the favourite. And the fact that, you know, this is the, uh, the strange circus of Indonesian politics where <laughs> the impossible can become possible. Jokowi Dodo, who fought against Prabowo twice, uh, is fully behind uh, Prabowo to the extent of gifting his son as the running mate. For the past two cycles of presidents in Indonesia, there's been SBY, of course, Susila Bambang Yudhoyono, followed by Jokowi. Very, in terms of the Australian relationship, gentle, very benign. Uh, there's been ups and downs, but by and large, it's been pretty straightforward and, and easygoing. Prabowo presents himself as the successor to the Jokowi presidency, but everything we know about this guy is totally different. So what will he be as president? Would he be a much more tricky, perhaps volatile character for Australia to deal with and interact with? I think he'll be a much more interesting and unpredictable and volatile character for anybody to do. <laughs> character building. Yeah. It'll be, you know, it'll be very character building for Indonesia too. You know. Uh, uh, but what's he like? You, you must have come across him during all your oh, years, yeah. Dewey. Sure. Personally, he's extremely intelligent. Don't forget, you know, for boys, intellectually, he's very well educated and come as, you know, uh, he's the son of, Professor Sumitro, who is the prominent economist under the New Order government, so that that family has a strong legacy of political involvement. Prabowo is the only one in his family who's gone to the military. The rumor is he's asked his father, you know, what is the quickest way to power? And the father said, you know, <laughs> during the New Order government, the military. Wow. So rather than going to Harvard, which he could have, you know, because he has enough intelligence to do that, he chose the military academy. And then, he, you know, uh, his career really shot up. Uh, but he is known to be quite temperamental. People say, you know, anger management is one of the issues. But in terms of foreign policy, I don't see him as going to be too much of a problem because Prabowo in his debates, presidential debate, also his foreign policy uh, exposure at the Center for Strategic International Studies, CSIS in Jakarta. And uh, his um, presidential vision for Indonesia's foreign policy is very much a new order of foreign policy. The focus on good neighbor policy. And he said, you know, one enemy is too many or 1,000 friends are too few. So in terms of strategic thrust, it's not going to be any any change. The only problem, the only question marks would be, you know, that this reputation that Prabowo himself, you know, the, uh, the, the clouds are hanging over him about uh, what he did, you know, particularly in the 98 period. And also, you know, if he loses his temper, which if it provoke, you know, it can happen. Well, you know that that would... can a leopard change his spots? I suppose. Will this man, who will come under immense pressure, and clearly in the past, you know, that's led to some explosions. How do you think that'll play out? And how ought something like Australia try to anticipate that? I, I just want to add to that as well, Jerry. I mean, how does Prabowo as president react if the Australian media, for example? relentlessly pursues these questions. What happened in 98 and 99? 
What was your role? What happened to those bodies? How does he react? Mm. He will say, you know, or why should you be more concerned, you know, about it than say Indonesians who obviously trusted me enough to vote for me, you know, <laughs> that this is a democracy, you know, and, and, and so on. He probably, he could just probably dismiss it, given the fact that he has been astute and, uh, you know, strategic enough or tactical, I would say, that a, a number of those pro-democracy uh, activists, and including some who've been kidnapped and, uh, and have survived to tell the tale, have now joined the, the pro-war camp. Yes. So what does he represent then? Is there a sort of solidity? Is there a strong man sense? I mean, there he is. He's 72 and he's dancing around on TikTok, you know, appealing to this huge young generation who haven't got a memory of any of this. So there's something there that we Australians need to fully understand by the sound of you. If you look back to the 2014 and 2019 elections when Prabhu stood up, uh, you know, as the, the only challenger to Joko Widodo, those who voted for Prabowo because they didn't like Jokowi. And remember, the accusations against Jokowi then was that he's too close to China, that he's, you know, a closet communist and, and so on and so forth. So Islamic groups, for example, who believe that communism is still a major threat and it's still coming and who has this very negative view about China than, say, the more secular nationalists. So those groups who are very critical of China, who are or worried about the influence of China to Indonesia. He was the one who voted most for Prabowo. He was very strong in Sumatra. He was very strong in Sulawesi. He was strong in West Java, where these are the, uh, if you divide Indonesia into the more Santri or Abangan, you know, the more religious and the more conservative groups, they all voted for Prabowo. And I imagine that uh, these votes are now divided. Uh, the, the identity issues are no longer much of an issue. Can, can I just quickly come in there? Is that is that partly internal Chinese concerns, though? I just just like to sort of clear that up. Is that external Chinese worries or this sort of long-standing veteran worry, you know, internally, which is such a problem for Indonesia? Uh, these issues are no longer being being uh, discussed very much uh, since Prabowo is part of the Jokowi cabinet. He's toned down his rhetoric against China. He used to to have a very strong rhetoric against China. Uh, but now he's toned that down because he said that he will continue to, to follow Jokowi's policy. But I have a feeling personally, Prabowo for a long time has always been much more critical of China. You know, he was mostly educated in the West. Prabowo's father fought in the regional rebellions uh, against President Sukarno based in West Sumatra. Uh, that regional events, among others, as you know, criticisms against Sukarno's leftist learning, uh, and and Prabowo uh, left Indonesia with his parents, living mostly in exile in Europe and educated in the West. So he's in that sense, you know, his experience is mostly based in the West. But he's extremely nationalistic, so he will not be, you know, he's he was been very critical of the West as well. He's been very critical of Europe, for example. Uh, so it will be, you know, he he is. His strongest credential, that is, he identifies he's a nationalist, you know. He will stand for what he sees as Indonesia's national interests. You know, he will not uh, be a softy uh, when faced, for example, with external pressures. Dewi, if I may, I'd love to zoom this conversation out slightly. Uh, Geraldine and I have been tussling over this question of the Australia-Indonesia relationship, why it never quite seems to live up to the, the promise and the potential. We've talked about ambivalence from Australia towards Indonesia, maybe that runs 
both ways, but you're someone that has, has spent time here, lived here, you've been at the centre of power in Jakarta. And I think we can probably all observe that on paper, this relationship reads really differently. You know, we're a developed nation, 25 million people, you're a democratic nation, almost 300 million people, a rapidly growing economy, pretty dramatic reforms and transformations over the last few decades. Shouldn't we be in sort of political, diplomatic, economic rapture with each other? Why aren't we? So the the, the potential is is there. We don't get along better because there are fundamental differences also. That, you know, that's people have written about, about Indonesia and Australia as being strange neighbours. A lot of people in Australia don't really understand Indonesia. I've seen surveys done by Lawi, for example, you know, the perceptions of Indonesia some see that you know there's uh, radical Islamics and terrorists. Some still see that's military. You know, so the 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 dynamism of Indonesia's reformasi is not really well, very well understood in Australia. Despite the fact that some of the best known Indonesian specialist scholars are found in Australia, but the wider public don't really understand Indonesia very well, and and they found it a bit difficult sometimes. You know, for the businessmen, they seem to be lagging behind. Does it make you sad? Does it disappoint you? Uh, it makes me sad, but also I say, you know, um, uh, in international relations, you don't don't need to romant- romanticize because you get disappointed about it. Uh, the fact the matter is, you know, I think both sides have to be realistic about it. Frankly, Indonesians as a whole do not pay attention to Australia. Exactly, very much. exactly. I feel quite strongly about this too. <laughs> Yeah, unless Australians annoy Indonesia over one thing or another, most of the times, mm. uh, you don't pay attention too much, too much to your neighbour to the south. You always look north. We have so many things going on to our northern, <laughs> our northern, northern part, you know. So, so Australia doesn't get into the equation very much. Uh, you don't read about Australia very much on Indonesian papers unless you do something, whether it's Australians getting to trouble in Bali or Australians carrying out foreign policy initiatives that are considered to be against Indonesia's interests. Ah, well, you know? that, that's a perfect segue because I was going to ask you about AUKUS. There's renewed discussion here, Day. We at quite interesting levels, sort of quite heavy hitter type people coming in saying, look, and Hugh White's got a, a, a new essay coming out in about a week's time, that until we actually sort out this AUKUS business, he doesn't think we need it at all. In fact, he thinks it's a sort of blight on Australia's planning. We won't have a foreign policy that really really works, or a defence acquisition policy, I might add. Now, how does Indonesia now sense this discussion around AUKUS, please? Well, as you know, it's quite rare that the Indonesian government openly become critical of uh, foreign policy taken by another country. You know, it's, uh, Australia is a sovereign state. But uh, in the past, I've, se- I've seen two two issues that Indonesia has taken against, against Australia. There's Scott Morrison's the announcement that the it, uh, Australia would follow uh, the United States in removing the embassy, Australian embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, that you know Indonesia was very critical of that. And then when this AUKUS was launched, the the release made by the foreign ministry uh, was at least about three things. First, you know, it worries about the impact of a non-nuclear weapon states like Australia. Uh, participating in this nuclear weapon programs because a submarine is not peaceful, peaceful use. So its impacts towards MPT, uh, the integrity of the MPT. Secondly, uh, Indonesia's concern about about 
the possible arms race, other countries wanting to have that kind of technology. So if Australia wants to do it, so it was to prevent other countries in the region wanting to have that. So, you know, you have a cascading or the proliferation of uh, nuclear fissile materials. Isn't the counter-argument to that, though, that it's just as much in Indonesia's interest as it is in ours, that this region remains stable, that there aren't major threats in the South China Seas and the associated trade routes, and that perhaps these submarines might reinforce the status quo? Now, uh, the third point is that uh, Indonesians and uh, the region believe, you know, quite a number of the regions believe, it would actually create greater unpredictability and instability. So with Australia becoming in, engaged in forward deployment, I don't forget, you know, Australia is to the south of Indonesia and will be using Indonesian sea lanes of communications, all the sea lanes communications that connects Australia Sure. Uh, to to South China Sea are uh, through Indonesia, which we already use, though, right? Yeah, exactly. But you see, if Australia becomes a combatant and becomes a target of attacks from the north, they have to pass through Indonesia. How do you think Indonesia is right in the middle of it? So we, are, I mean, there are genuine concerns that Indonesia will be caught, uh, you know, not rather than maintaining status quo. If conflicts do happen and Australia is forward deployed, and Australia itself becomes a target with the use of ballistic missiles from the north and Australia becoming a real target because it engages directly in the combat, for example, in the uh, in the Straits of Taiwan. That That's a major worry for us. Would you say that uh, someone like Prabowo, will he take a keen interest in this? I mean, you know, Joko Bododo wasn't particularly interested at all in foreign affairs. Can you imagine? And I might add that Prabowo, we don't even know whether he's going to be president yet, but is this the sort of thing that he will be much more keenly interested in? Have we got to get used to that? Uh, yeah, well, uh, uh, a democ- in a de- democracy, you know, no one wins until the last count. Uh, the last count is counted. So let's see. But if Prabowo becomes the president, he will be a much more hands-on foreign policy president co- compared to Jokowi Dodo. He, he himself is, you know, he went to a military academy. Uh, he is very well versed, very well informed, and clearly very interested on the defense issues. He sees himself as someone, you know, who can make an impact. He also sees himself a bit more like a Sukarno, you know, the rhetorics and and wow. uh, he's um, he's not shy. He's quite willing to to go out and so put himself out in the cl- Clearly, strap ourselves in for the ride is oh. what I think is the subtext of what you're saying. I'm going to look forward to having him on the show, Dewi Fortuna Anwar. Thank you so much for your time. Makasi banyak. Sampai jumpa lagi. Sampai jumpa lagi. Thank you. Oh gosh, you're a show off. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> See you, Dewey. Great to chat. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, Hamish, now that was a very tempting little sort of overview of what might be, might be to come. What did you make of it? Well, I learned a bit. I mean, the, the family history of Prabowo there, uh, those complex relationships between the Sakano era and then the Sahato era, so many of those kind of foundational elements of modern Indonesia mm. are at play in this one new possible leader. And of course, you stressed, we should continue to stress, it's not a, a done deal. But if indeed Prabowo is the next President of Indonesia, I think we are going to be in for a very interesting time. I don't think that's an understatement. Uh, and I I think uh, we have probably become very relaxed about the relationship because of the personality of Jokowi and, and prior to that, SBY. 
uh, and maybe we're not going to be able to be quite so relaxed. Well, look, I must say I was intrigued completely by her articulation of this concern about China and communism, you know, that she said there as one of the things that actually might prompt Raboa Subiato being voted for, because they've got to be so constantly careful it doesn't become an internal Chinese problem, which really bedevils Indonesia. The Chinese are perceived to be the money men and the decision makers, and the Indonesians, the Javanese, the Sumatrans get very anxious about it. So I thought her articulation of that was very interesting. I found just the sense of somebody who finds foreign policy so interesting uh, and and that he feels he's quite skilled at it. That's the impression I got. And, you know, that temperature rose when she was talking about AUKUS. Now, that was a very prominent distinction in that interview and, and really in a way, I don't mean a warning in the awful way, but it's a flag across our bow. We will have to know how to deal with this well. So has this conversation convinced you of anything? Are you more excited about the potential of this relationship? Well, you see, I'm a bit on her side. I'm not worried about the fact that it doesn't live up to its full potential. I think it's both sides. I think we're neighbours and I think we want to... We don't look to be best friends. I'm, I've actually quite come to terms with that <laughs> more than you have, I know. I used to think it was going to be so much more intimate and enchanting and, and, and then I thought, no, it's not. It's not. And that's all right. Don't panic. It's not you. It's me. Let's just be friends. <laughs> Now, it's come to the point in the episode where we provide a few recommendations and thank you to those of you that have written in to us this week saying that you've followed the recommendations. Geraldine, your reading uh, suggestions last week have been taken up and uh, we'd love to hear from you actually if you think there's anything we should be pointing to. So please do keep the emails coming, global.roaming at abc.net.au. Jerry, what would you like to recommend this week? Well, look, I, you cannot, simply cannot go past Christopher Kosh's book, brought out in 1978, The Year of Living Dangerously. Now, I read it again recently. I just think it is a marvellous book. It's the story of uh, events around the epic dramas of 1965, when, of course, Sukarno was effectively overthrown by a, a range of people, including um, President Suharto. It's a story of Guy Hamilton, who as some people say is modelled on Mike Carlton, <laughs> the, the yeah. Some people, Mike Carlton, is that who says it? <laughs> no, no, others say it. Other than but look, it's a great book made into a terrific film with Mel Gibson, um, uh, Sigourney Weaver and that marvellous woman Linda Hunt uh, playing the um, the photographer. So I strongly recommend that. It just, it lives beautifully, you know, it really lasts well. So what are you going to recommend, Hamish? So we've been talking about succession on this episode and in fact last week's episode on that theme. Sarah Snook, the Australian actress from Succession, is debuting on the West End stage as Dorian Gray, this Sydney Theatre Company performance that has gone to the world. She's receiving rave reviews and she did an interview with the BBC's Radio 4 Today program. The link to that, it's beautiful, is up on the notes of our episode page. Yeah, she's one of the various young Australian actors and who are just starring in the world. It's quite something, actually. Please keep your feedback coming, global.roaming at abc.net.au. And if you are listening on radio this week, uh, I know a lot of you are finding your way into podcasts, perhaps for the first time, and we'd love you to come on this journey with us. If you've got any questions about how to download the ABC Listen app, how to find us there or find us anywhere, send us a note at the email address. We're going to drop a specific 
instruction guide into our feed in the coming weeks dealing with any of your technical questions. I've been helping my auntie Jan in Canberra download Global Roaming. Don't look uh, at me too closely, please. <laughs> <laughs> Send your questions and we'll get some answers for you in the coming weeks. And of course, if you're listening on any other platform, please give us a star rating, give us a like or leave a comment and review. We would very much appreciate it. Hamish, that's it for this week. Fabulous discussion. Bye-bye for now. See you next time. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.